Blog Talk Radio. pancakes with my hands like a savage. Who does this? I do it. (laughs) Oh, but it's necessary. I am fucking starving. We got a big show today. Mostly a breakdown show from the debate. Um... Mostly a breakdown show, but I do have some non-debate stories a little later on. Not that many, but I do have some. I started prepping for the debate, and I found that I couldn't stop. I just did like a zillion of the debate stories. But it was a good it was a good debate. I think it was the best one yet, to be honest. Um, best debate yet because there was the most fighting we've seen so far, which is a good thing. We are pro-fighting here at Secular Talk. We are definitely um, pro-candidates going at each other's throats. So, I could give you a little rundown here real quick. We got Warren and Buttigieg going at it hard. We got Bernie and Biden going at it hard. We got Klobuchar trying to be relevant and the media giving her a giant push for no reason. Oh, you know what? I might tag on a story at the end here of Chris Saliza because Chris Saliza is, like, seriously the dumbest person in all of media. And he's working overtime to try to push a narrative. So we'll dive into that, too, as long as I remember. Um, 
Don't worry, y'all. I'm almost done with my pancakes. <laughs> the breakfast was absolutely necessary, or else I'd be half dead throughout the show. Okay, so... And you just you chug some big seltzer and you're ready to go. All right, without further ado, let's get started. And I'm going to do that with my initial debate breakdown, which should be fun. Um, I have some pretty strong feelings about this debate. So anyway, let's do it. Let's dive into it. So the Democratic debate happened yesterday. I believe it was the fifth or the sixth Democratic debate. And um, in my opinion, it was one of the best ones yet, if not the best one yet. And I say that because people fought. And when they went at it, you were able to, you know, more clearly uh, differentiate the ideological differences, which really should be the point of a primary and primary debate. So I want to give you uh, my rundown here. Since there are fewer candidates on stage, they really limited it. Now, now there's only seven people on stage. You know, previously we've had like 10 people and, uh, you know, 4,312 people on stage. <laughs> um, but I'm, I'm able to give like a, a direct rundown now as opposed to in the previous debates. I just gave like, well, here's who I think is a winner. Here's who I think is a loser. Here's who, you know, kind of was just there and didn't help themselves or hurt themselves. So um, we'll go from bottom up here. Who did the worst to who did the best? Uh, dead last is Mayor Pete. In my opinion, Mayor Pete got rocked all night. Now, uh, you know, this is where people accuse me of saying, well, you don't like him, and that's why you're putting him at the bottom. I really don't think that's a fair criticism, because I've had, um, you know, I had Cory Booker winning one of the debates, or tying for winning one of the debates, and I can't stand Cory Booker. So I really do try my best throughout the course of these debates to put my ideological bias aside and try to look at it through the lens of somebody who's relatively apolitical and they just stumbled upon the debate and they want to watch it. Um, now, is, am I a machine? Can I perfectly put aside my bias? Of course not. Um, but I do think that the fact that I've bucked trends, there are nights I've said Bernie's had a terrible night and there are a lot of nights I've said he's had a good night. If it was, if my commentary was so colored by my biases, I'd obviously, there wouldn't be variation in that. I'd always have Bernie at number one, um, but I don't. That, that doesn't happen every night. Sometimes he he's didn't have a good night. And uh, so anyway, I hope that everybody understands that I'm trying my best here to put my bias aside and view it through the lens of somebody who's relatively apolitical, who stumbled across the debate. But in the case of Mayor Pete, I mean, he was just getting hammered. He was getting hammered. Everybody on stage was going after him, or actually, I don't know if that's fair. Most of the people on stage were going after him. And Elizabeth Warren pointed out that he just did a fundraiser in a wine cave, a wine cave. And it was a big money fundraiser. You had like $900 bottles of wine being served. So that's not exactly conducive to being around small dollar donors and caring about the concerns of small dollar donors. It's conducive to caring about the concerns of elites because you're in a room surrounded by elites. Um, so she brought up the wine cave. Everybody kept bringing up the wine cave. Bernie's team was wearing, like, Pete's wine cave shirts after, after the debate in the spin room, just, like, taking trolling to the next level. That's an expert-level troll, man. That's on some, like, 
Trump-level genius trolling right there. Wearing the Pete's Wine Cave shirts. I mean, that's... Like, you were caught, bro. He tries to... And he keeps trying to, like, wiggle his way out of accountability as if it's a non-issue. And it's like, no, people just don't agree with you. We think it's gross that you did a fundraiser, a big-money fundraiser in a wine cave. So it paints him as this out-of-touch, corrupt elitist who's more than willing to take bribes. And it paints him as that because he is that. So... I mean, he just got hammered over and over and over. And Mayor Pete now has fallen into the same trap that a lot of the other candidates who are now dunsies have fallen into. Namely, he spends so much time in the debate talking about what he's against and not what he's for. I don't know why I come out here and give advice to to these centrists who I massively disagree with, but here is a little piece of advice. If you're a neoliberal centrist, you still have to talk about what you're for, and you can't spend a lot of your time on what you're against, because then you just look like sour grapes. Then you just look like the defining feature of your ideology is to block social democracy as opposed to usher in a future that has a vision for it that you know, you've know perceived in your mind. And so you look like a hack when all you're talking about is what you're against. Um, you have to go out there and say, listen, here's my vision. Here's, here's what a positive future would look like. And he fell into that trap now, and Mayor Pete all the time, he just talks about, it, it, again, it's the same point over and over, free college. Here's why the kids of rich people shouldn't, uh, you know, get free college. And it's like a pseudo, it's a cloaked, it's a pseudo-populist argument, but really, ultimately, when it comes down to it, it's a right-wing argument because the, the core of it is universal programs are a bad idea. And it's concern trolling from a faux left-wing perspective about universal programs. So... Um, I think Mayor Pete had a horrible night. He just got hammered over and over. Then uh, the number five position is Amy Klobuchar. Now, Amy Klobuchar spoke, and this was, you know, I don't remember exactly when it was. It was either a quarter of the way through the debate or halfway through the debate, but she got a majority of the speaking time. That is absolutely absurd. She's polling one of the lowest on stage, and she got most of the speaking time compared to the other candidates. I mean, come on, man. That's not – nobody wants to hear from Klobuchar. Nobody wants to hear from Steyer. I get it, Steyer, Steyer. I get it. They, they made it on stage. Okay. I think Steyer made it through Steyer uh, through weird means. But, yeah, like to give them more speaking time than Bernie and Biden, who are leading in the polls and kind of by a lot – it's just unserious, you know, and I, I honestly, I would say the same thing, even if Tulsi was on stage and everybody knows I'm relatively sympathetic to Tulsi, but if she was on stage and she was getting more speaking time than Bernie and Biden, I'd be like, I, I, I mean, come on, we're getting a little silly here. So, but with that time, she managed to do Dickie McGee's ex because it's classic Klobuchar. Just, you know, awkward, folksy, I'm from the Midwest nonsense mixed in with, let me tell you why uh, we can't do basic things that other developed countries have done. It didn't catch on in the first five or so debates. Why do you think it's going to catch on now? But guys, I I mean, this drives me crazy, but it's the truth. The media is doing a giant Klobuchar push right now. They want you, like, it's a who do you believe, us or your lying eyes kind of moment, because... In every focus group, during the debate, after the debate, people are like, no, I didn't like her. 
But then the media relentlessly always pushes her and acts like, oh, no, 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 she, like, she's wonderful. She's special. She's doing great stuff. Politico is trying to push Oh, she looked very presidential on stage. Uh, Chris Saliza, also known as the world's dumbest pundit, he was pushing uh, Amy Klobuchar. And, of course, he was at all Bernie had a bad night. Stop trying to make Klobuchar a thing. It's not going to happen. She's not going to pop off. She's not going to all of a sudden, you know, skyrocket into the top tier of candidates. This is like, they seriously are all under the mass delusion that it's 1992 and they can force you to believe it's 1992, a a time when she would have potentially had a chance. Now that it's just not the case, but they're trying to make it happen. But so she spoke the most and said the least, (laughs) you know, at least with Mayor Pete, it's like, he didn't speak as much as Klobuchar, but at least you could say he was honest and upfront. Like, I don't, you know, um, I'm a neoliberal centrist, and yes, I like big money fundraisers. Klobuchar, it was just like the folksy nonsense and um, filling the room with noise, but not saying anything. I, I can't tell you how many times she said she's from the Midwest. I'm from the Midwest. I'm from the Midwest. I'm from the Midwest. Nobody cares. Your geographical location is not an argument for or against you. What are you actually going to do for the country? So I just, I found her terrible, um, even though the media is trying to say she won. And then the fourth place is Tom Steyer, Steyer. He was just there, you know, he's like a mild-mannered dude who seems like he's in way over his head because he is way in over his head. He basically bought his way on stage. It's one of those situations where he spent so much money on ads, the only Bloomberg is in front of him. Um, and he, he's carpet bombed the airwaves to the point where he gets up enough in the polls where he just ekes it onto the debate stage. And you could tell, like, he doesn't really belong there because he seems like he doesn't belong there. He seems like he bought his way on stage. He seems like, you know, a deer in headlights every time they try to talk to him. And um, half the time he tries to sound a little more leftist, and then the other half the time he tries to sound a little more uh, centrist, and there's, like, no political identity there. And you could tell he's just struggling to try to differentiate himself and be like, here's why you should support me. It's just like you're watching a dude with a political identity crisis on stage, and it really comes across. And, you know, nobody really thinks it's that dude won. And also, by the way, and this isn't necessarily his fault, but he didn't speak, like, at all. He got very little speaking time. Um, Then we get to the number three position. Joe Biden. Joe Biden was a, a solid number three. Now, I think it was his best debate performance yet. That's not saying much. That's like saying somebody's the tallest kid in kindergarten. Um, but the first half of the debate, I think he was pretty good. But then the second half of the debate is when he kind of fell off. Um, he was more sharp. He was more concise in the first half of the debate. And then in the second half of the debate, he slowly but surely became more like standard Joe Biden, which unfortunately in these days is really not sharp. Um, but it definitely was his best debate performance yet. And one could make the argument that since he's already leading in the polls, that all he needs is debate performances like we're seeing here, where it's like, you know, a solid third place, um, a solid third place performance, which means it might be hard to knock him down off that top spot. So I don't necessarily know the fallout here and what will happen when it comes to Biden. It's possible that he goes down a little bit. It's possible he goes up a little bit. I don't know. But in my opinion, it was definitely his best debate performance, even though it was still relatively underwhelming. Definitely underwhelming compared to 2012, 
Joe Biden, who was a beast on the debate stage, just absolutely obliterated uh, Paul Ryan in a thousand different ways. He did it with Sarah Palin in 08 as well. He was just sharp with it, and he took no nonsense. This Joe Biden is a lot different from that Joe Biden. But still, having said that, I think it was his strongest debate performance yet. And then uh, the second place position is Elizabeth Warren. Elizabeth Warren uh, had a dynamic that was somewhat similar to Joe Biden's in the sense that the first half of the debate, I think she was really sharp and doing well. And then she kind of petered off in the second half of the debate. Um, But still, I think she did enough good in the first half of the debate where the takeaway for most people will be she had a good night. She had a good night. Now, again, that's just my opinion. But um, that's the sense I got when I watched it. I think she went out there knowing she had to be a little bit more aggressive. And so she did that. And it was landing in the first half of the debate. And then the second half of the debate, she just kind of, you know, um, stopped surging and existed on stage without doing much. Now, that means, uh, number one, I have a tie for number one. I have Andrew Yang and Bernie Sanders for different reasons. So this is actually interesting because in the case of Bernie, he, I think he, like, commanded the stage yesterday. It, it was classic Bernie in the sense that he was hitting, you know, his populist themes over and over. He leaned into fights. Um, he made a broad, strong defense of universal programs, which was wonderful to see. But it really felt like he was the front runner on stage. It felt like everything came through him. Um, so it, that was a good dynamic to see. And you're about to see later on that there's, um, there was a focus group done. So like in a snap poll done uh, right after the debate with the LA Times, they had Frank Luntz, who's a famous pollster, do, do this thing with a room full of people. And the majority said that Bernie Sanders was the winner. And it's not like the people who said he was a winner went into the debate supporting him. Many of them did not go into the debate supporting him, but they said he by far and away had the best performance. Um, So Bernie sort of beasted there. um, And Andrew Yang, he did well for a different reason. Yang, I think, did well because as everybody else was fighting, he kind of laid back. Now, you could argue theoretically that's not a positive, but he turned it into a positive, and here's why. He had a lot of, like, memorable one-liners, and he made a lot of jokes that landed. And for people who don't know about, like, the way that these things work, debates oftentimes come down to human psychology a lot. And unfortunately, it's not even necessarily about the strength of your arguments, and it's not about the logic, it's not about... The facts, it's not about, even sometimes it's not about your vision. It's about what's memorable, what sticks with people. And, you know, you could think back to Trump versus Hillary. I mean, I'm sure that Hillary said, if you did a total breakdown of of the full debates between Hillary and Trump, I guarantee you that, like, Trump had more falsehoods and Hillary made more sense. But Trump, in my opinion, won those debates. Why? Because he was more memorable and he took a lot of shots that landed. And he made the crowd laugh. And when he did go after her, it was vicious and it was to the point. And so he had more, it was more memorable. What he did stuck with people more. Like in today's day and age, and granted Trump is president now, but like you're more liable to hear about a Trump debate performance from back then than a Hillary debate performance because hers was just standard. In the case of Andrew Yang, he had a lot of like funny things that he said and different things that he said. 
which um, made it so that he was memorable in the room. Like, people are going to walk away going, I like that guy. Um, and I know because there are people in my own family who I've spoken to who, uh, after every debate, they're like, you know, I really like that Asian guy. He's pretty good. So this is what I'm talking about. This is, so I, my predictions after this debate go as follows. I think that Pete is going to go down in the polls. I think that he had his surge, then he kind of stalled out a little bit. Now he's waffling, and I'm pretty sure Pete's numbers are going to go down. I don't know how much, but I think they're going to go down. I'm relatively confident in that prediction. I also predict that Yang's numbers go up, and I honestly think they're going to go up enough so that he makes the next debate. And I don't know, I don't know um, what the threshold is for that debate, but whatever it is, I think Yang is going to make it. I think he's going to have a surge. Um, and then my other two predictions, those predictions I'm pretty confident on, that Yang is going to go up and that Pete is going to go down. Um, and then my other prediction is, and this one, these two I'm not as confident about, I could see Bernie gaining. Now, I don't know how much. I think he'll gain a little bit off this debate, but I also see Biden falling. Again, I don't know how much, but maybe a little bit. Now, those two predictions I'm not as strong on. I think it's possible that Bernie just maintains and Biden just maintains as well. I think that's possible. But my gut says Bernie's going to go up a little bit, Biden's going to go down a little bit slightly here I'm talking about, but definitely Pete is going to go down and Yang is going to go up. So anyway, that's my breakdown. You had Bernie and Yang both tie for a victory, in my opinion. I think Yang kind of laid back and let everybody else go at each other, but he had enough memorable lines where everybody was like, oh, cool, like I like that guy. And Bernie, I also think, won because for the opposite reason of Yang, he leaned into the fights, but he also controlled the debate and controlled the narrative. And it felt like he was a front runner and all things went through him. And he was classic Bernie, hitting away on the populist themes. And, you know, as you guys hear me say on this show all the time, it's the populism, stupid. Whether you're on the right or on the left, that sells massively. So that's my breakdown. Bernie and Yang, number one. Uh, Warren, number two. Biden, number three. Biden's best night so far, I think. Uh, Klobuchar, five. And Mayor Pete, six. Okay. Next. Next, next, next. Oh, what I have to do is change the color of the freaking LED lights behind me and do it throughout the show. That, I do not have a, a choice on. I have to do it because I have to differentiate story from story. Sorry, this is a technical shit that goes on behind the scenes that people might not know about. Okay, PBS. At the Democratic debate last night, PBS framed a question about taxes from a right-wing perspective, and th this drives me crazy because they, they don't even know they're doing it necessarily, but they're buying into many right-wing premises here, and they're just presenting it as if it's objective fact. And it's really not. It's really not. So it, it's frustrating, but Warren handled the question pretty well. Take a look.
every candidate on the stage has proposed tax increases on the wealthy. But you have a specially ambitious plan that, apart from health care, would hike taxes an additional $8 trillion over the decade, the biggest tax increase in, since World War II. How do you answer top economists who say taxes of this magnitude would stifle growth and investment? Oh, they're just wrong. <laughs> With the wealth tax, the idea of a 2% tax on the great fortunes in this country, $50 million and above. For 2 cents, what can we do? We can invest in the rest of America. We can provide universal child care, early childhood education for every baby in this country aged 0 to 5. Universal pre-K for every three-year-old and four-year-old and raise the wages of every child care worker and preschool teacher. We can do even more for our public schools, for college graduates. We can cancel student loan debt. But think about the economic impact of that. Who leave two cents with a billionaire? They're not eating more pizza. They're not buying more cars. We invest that 2% in early childhood education and child care. That means those babies get top-notch care. It means their mamas can finish their education. It means their mamas and their daddies can take on real jobs, harder jobs, longer hours, and we can increase productivity in this country, and we can start building this economy from the ground up. That's how we build it in small towns. That's yeah. how we build it in rural America, and that's how we build it in urban America, That's an economy that works so there's a bunch to say about that. First of all, they asked the question of Warren and basically said, like, oh, your plan is special in the sense that it really raises taxes on the rich the most. That's just not true. They singled her out as if, like, oh, her plan is especially hard on the rich. That's not true. Bernie's goes further than Elizabeth Warren's. Now, I don't think it's nefarious. I just think that they really don't know that Bernie also proposed a wealth tax, and Bernie's wealth tax goes further than Elizabeth Warren, because the media went inski talking about Elizabeth Warren's wealth tax. They, like, there were so many articles about that. And then when Bernie released his and released his detailed plan, and his plan went further than Warren. It just didn't generate the, that much press coverage. And now we've had multiple questions at these debates where they're basically like, you know, Warren, you're the one who has proposed a wealth tax. And, you know, I've seen headlines like billionaires go after Warren's wealth tax. And it's like they omit Bernie, but his wealth tax goes further than Elizabeth Warren. So it's just it's kind of frustrating that she singled out as if like, now you're the toughest on the rich. No, she's not. And that's should be unsurprising to people who follow this stuff in and out. Um, now, that doesn't mean her wealth uh, tax plan is bad. It's actually pretty good, but I think Bernie's is better. But, you know, they, they just, like, omit him, and that annoys me. But anyway, I digress from that. Um, the question was framed as, well, obviously, if you raise taxes on the rich too much, I mean, this is a giant problem. E economists say, hold on now. We had, there was a, an era in U.S. history where it was called the golden age of economic expansion. 
This was, of course, post-World War II. And there were a variety of factors went into it. Don't get me wrong. A variety of, uh, of things went into it. However, the top marginal tax rate on the rich was as high as 93%. Now, listen, don't, don't misunderstand that because a lot of people hear that and they think like, oh, the government is going to take 93% of your income. No, 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 no. That's not the way a marginal tax rate works. A marginal tax rate means everything above a certain line is taxed at 93%. And that 93% doesn't include, you know, the loopholes uh, and the deductions that you can get. So the effective rate is going to be much lower than what's called the nominal rate. 93% is the nominal rate. But that's neither here nor there. Fact of the matter is, during the golden age of economic expansion, the nominal top marginal rate was 93%. The effective rate was about 43%, which is way higher than what we have now, okay? And we had the most prosperous economy we've ever had in U.S. history. Now, again, a lot goes into that because Europe was totally obliterated because of the war, and we were kind of like the last man standing. So, you know, manufacturing, like, had to be a hub in the United States, and we were the leader of the world. So there's a lot that goes into it, and I don't want to make everybody think like, oh, it was only the fact that we had high taxes on the rich that led to a prosperous economy. Because it's not that. But is it a factor? Is it the case that, oh, if you raise taxes on the rich, it will by definition hurt the economy? That's not true at all. And they're presenting it as if that is the case. They're presenting it as if like, well, obviously all economists agree you can't raise taxes on the rich like that. They most certainly do not. And in fact, there's a really sound economic argument that if you raise the marginal income tax rate on the rich, but you have a, a corporate tax rate that's lower, so let's say your marginal uh, top tax rate is 45% on the rich, but you have a 25% corporate tax, what are you doing with all those rich people? You're incentivizing them to keep their money in their corporations, in their businesses, which then leads to growth of those businesses, which then leads to more hiring, so on and so forth. So... I mean, it's just really weird that they always portray, like, the higher taxes are by definition bad. What we're talking about here is, as opposed to a trickle-down economy, a trickle-up economy. And you hear Elizabeth Warren lay out there in, in detail the fact that redistribution of wealth is absolutely necessary. Everybody believes in redistribution of wealth to one extent or another. The question is just, where do you draw the line? Where's a reasonable place to draw the line when it comes to redistribution of wealth? And obviously, if you raise taxes on the rich, whether it be in, in a wealth tax, which, which impacts the entire net worth, or whether it's just an increase in a marginal uh, tax rate, y you then have funds that you can use for either Medicare for all, or free college, or you know, paid time off. You could have a variety of programs that redistribute. And as she rightly points out, at a certain point, when you have mega wealthy people, if you give them a tax break, that money just, you know, makes money and, and in many instances sits in, their bank, sits in their bank account. Whereas if you give more money to people at the bottom end or in the middle, they immediately have to spend it because a lot of those people, usually they're back on bills a little bit and they got to pay off their bills and, you know, oh my God, hey, we finally got some disposable income. Let's take a vacation. So you have like a multiplier effect where, you know, there's this reverberating impact of, um, raising taxes on the rich and redistributing that is beneficial for the entire economy. You get the economy going more. So it's just, 
And then there's also the flip point of this, too, which is massively important, which should be like common sense at this point, but unfortunately it's not treated as that, which is every time in U.S. history we've done, you give it whatever name you want, trickle-down economics, Reaganomics, voodoo economics, these are all different names that it's been given over the years. Um, every time we've done that, there's been what's called a boom-bust cycle. So if you massively cut taxes for the rich and deregulate at the same time, if you marry those two things together, um, the stock market takes off and everybody thinks, oh, my God, the good times are never going to end. Look at you know, all the corporate profits we're swimming in. And then eventually the bubble bursts. And that's what, in part, what led to the subprime mortgage crisis and the Great Recession, along with the repeal of Glass-Steagall. Um, and that's also what led to uh, the Great Depression. Also, that's what led to um, Ronald Ra- the post-Ronald Reagan recession, because he, you know, he was the king of Reaganomics, obviously, and he cut taxes for the rich and deregulated like crazy. So the real lesson is actually the exact opposite of how the question was presented. The question was presented like, well, obviously raising taxes on the rich is bad for the economy. Are you kidding me? That's not true at all. That's not even close to true. The economic history shows the exact opposite, that when you do trickle-down economics, we're on borrowed time and we're going to have another boom-bust cycle. Now, again, if you compare that with the golden age of economic expansion, where even under a Republican president like Eisenhower, we had a 90% top marginal tax rate, we, had, uh, we didn't have any giant crashes and we had steady growth for decades because there was no bubble. It wasn't fake growth. It was sustainable growth. It was married with more pro-labor policies, and it, and it was married with, uh, we had higher rates of unionization, and it was married with higher taxes on the rich, which allowed us to redistribute and keep income inequality under control as well, which then also has positive effects. You know, back then, you had like a 25 to 1 ratio for CEO pay versus average worker pay. Now we're over 300 to 1. If you think that doesn't have long-term negative effects on the economy, i got a bridge to sell you. So if anything... Everything I've ever read about economics says the exact opposite, that you should have a system where um, you have a progressive tax rate and you, and you have a higher marginal rate on the rich, of course, um, and that has many positive effects. And final point is, you do know that Canada, for example, was able to withstand the, the biggest brunt of the Great Recession. Why? Because they never deregulated their banks. And they always had a more left-wing approach to economics. Some of the Scandinavian countries totally weathered the subprime mortgage crisis in the Great Recession. Why? For the reasons you would expect. They, they regulated the financial industry, and they've always had much stronger progressive uh, tax systems. And these social democratic uh, programs work, but they're presented by PBS uh, as like, well, obviously we all agree that doing left-wing economics is terrible, right? All economists agree to that. What? What are you saying? And, and Elizabeth Warren said, well, they're just wrong talking about the economists. I would have said, tell me which economist you're talking about. Uh, because certainly the ones I've read, Gabriel Zuckman, for example, um, uh, Emmanuel Saez, I think his name is, they say the exact opposite. Thomas Piketty is another one. They say the exact opposite. So what are you talking about? I mean, who are you citing, like Art Laffer, who's famously been wrong about everything? Are you citing the goofy CNBC, uh, CNBC host who's into economics? Larry Kudlow, is that who you're citing? Or are you citing, like, you know, I don't know, Von Mises or Hayek or Milton Friedman? Like, who are you citing? Because they presented it as if it was fact, and it most certainly is not fact.
Okay. Okay, now, yet again, I will now change the lights behind me, bitch. Bernie Sanders got saucy last night, and he went off on the issue of climate change, and he did a great job of linking it to foreign policy as well. Take a look. I'd like to ask you, three consecutive American presidents have enjoyed stints of explosive economic growth due to a boom in oil and natural gas production. As president, would you be willing to sacrifice some of that growth, even knowing potentially that it could displace thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands of blue-collar workers in the interest of transitioning to that greener economy? Tim, in all due respect, your question, Mrs. Locke, it is not an issue of relocating people in towns. The issue now is whether we save the planet for our children and our grandchildren. The issue, as you should know, what the scientists are telling us, is they have underestimated the threat and severity of climate change. You're talking about the Paris Agreement, that's fine. Ain't enough. We have got to, and I've introduced legislation to do this, declare a national emergency. The United States has got to lead the world. And maybe, just maybe, instead of spending $1.8 trillion a year, globally on weapons of destruction, maybe an American president, i.e. Bernie Sanders, can leave the world. Instead of spending money to kill each other, maybe we pull our resources and fight our common enemy, which is climate change. Thank you, Senator Sanders. Now, CNN had a field day with this afterwards, and they did a fact check where they said, Bernie said we spend $1.8 trillion on weapons, but... Silly Bernie, that's the entire military budget. Yeah, I think if you go back and listen to it, that's what he means. When he talks about, like, oh, we spent $1.8 trillion on weapons, he goes on to say $1.8 trillion on killing each other. Yeah, he means he's talking about that's our military budget. He doesn't mean, like, that's literally the amount of money we spend, if we, uh, you know, we spend on weapons deals. That's not what he, he actually means. See, this is like the, they try to be context dense to play gotcha. That's what they do. They try to be context dense to play gotcha. Because I knew what he was trying to say there. What, they didn't know? CNN people didn't know? They're, they're being like super literal to be like, aha, gotcha. Now, on the broader point though, I mean, he's obviously correct. The argument is, hey, we're wasting all this money. We spent $7 trillion in the Iraq war, $2 trillion in Afghanistan. We were lied to throughout both of those wars the entire time. Our people died. Civilians died. Nothing positive came out of this. Um, We're policing the world. Nothing positive comes out of that. This is how we're spending our resources. This is what we're doing. You know, there are other options. You know, we can, like, I don't know, take this money and do a massive investment in a Green New Deal to get us off of fossil fuels bring us renewable and green technology, and also, you know, save the planet in the process, fight back against climate change. Also, emphasis on the New Deal part of the Green New Deal, which is job creation, which gets back to the original point, which is 
Notice how they always ask the question. The question is always like, oh, my God, this is obviously going to disrupt the job market because, you know, you have so many oil and gas jobs. So, I mean, are you willing to tell those people to piss off? <laughs> like, that's the, that's, the, that's the sense you get. That's the implication of these questions and how they're asked. And it's just like it's an annoying way to frame it because, as Bernie rightly points out, it's like, you do know that we don't really have a choice and, like, we have to get off of fossil fuels at some point, right? Like, you do understand that. You do understand that that's not a matter of opinion. That's a matter of absolute necessity. So when you accept that that's the fact, it's a weird way to ask the question. Now, don't get me wrong. Do I think, you know, hey, this is a big change we're making and it's going to massively impact um, you know, so many jobs. Absolutely. Absolutely. But that doesn't mean we don't act on it in the same way that, you know, you can't say there are so many jobs tied to our criminal price gouging health uh, healthcare system. So how could we change it? We have to. You don't have a choice. We spend double than the rest of the developed world. This is unsustainable. People get ripped off. 500,000 people going bankrupt every year. 45,000 people dying because they don't have health care. I know a lot of jobs are tied to it, but the industry has to change. We don't have an option. And it, it, it's almost like just fear-mongering from a perspective that's incredibly primitive. In the sense that, like, think about a question being asked in an old-school, like, 1700s or 1800s debate. I don't know when the telephone was invented, but imagine them saying, like, now, now, we have thousands of jobs tied to the Morse code industry. Are we sure we should be moving towards this telephone thing? I mean, you look at that and say, fundamentally, that's a ridiculous question. It's like fear-mongering about, we have so many jobs tied to the horse and buggy industry. Do we really want this car thing? Automobile thingy? You'd look at that now and be like, wow, you guys are really silly. It's the same thing when it comes to getting to green and renewable technology. And by the way, again, Green New Deal means... We will create millions of jobs for this new economy. And that's the main point, is you have to look at this. Fighting back against climate change is a necessity, but you also have to look at it like a business opportunity. Now, you guys know me. I'm not, like, anti-business. So if, if you want to have the inevitable patents in this whole new field, if you want to lead the world, if you want to have job creation and wealth creation moving into the future, then you go all in on something like a Green New Deal to get us off of fossil fuels and bring us into the future. So point is, if you lead the way, all of the concerns go away. If you lead the world in this, well, then, you know, there's nothing but positives that can come about as a result of it, whether it's job creation or wealth creation. Um, and it's always framed from the opposite perspective of like, oh, my God, what if things change? Oh, my God, what about all the jobs tied to the oil industry? And what we need to impress upon people is, oh, 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 no, 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 we're, we're with you in that we're the, we're the ones who are most concerned about those jobs going away, but we have a plan. And the plan is X, Y, and Z to transition to this new economy of the future. And it's a matter of we're going to get there at some point. Do you want to lag behind China and lag behind other places? Or do you want to lead the way, in which case it works out for everybody? So I think it's good that he's impressing upon everybody um, that this isn't really a choice, that 
the way they're asking the question is fear-mongering. And, um, you know, it's one of those things where they're trying to give Republicans a soundbite where the Republicans can, you know, run it in, a, in an attack ad during the general election where they say, oh, Bernie Sanders wants to take away all of the oil and gas jobs. It's like the same, for the same reason that they do the whole, uh, oh, a Green New Deal, it wants to ban airplanes. See how they spin it? Everything's like spun. It's not that they're saying, well, I mean, obviously we have to get off of fossil fuels at some point, so let's develop the technology of the future. No, it's framed as they're going to ban airplanes. It's just such a disingenuous spin on it to try to, you know, make your opponent look ridiculous without having to do any work. So it's frustrating, it's annoying, but I think Bernie handled that question very well. Um, And I think it's time for the conversation to shift on this. It's time to shift to, first of all, we have no choice. We have to address this. Second of all, the question is, are we going to be the first to address it and get all the benefits, or are we going to drag our feet, in which case we won't get as many benefits, even though we'll be transitioning anyway? Okay, next. Andrew Yang, Andrew Yang, we back to Andrew Yang. Andrew Yang brought up an important issue in the debate, and it's an issue that nobody ever talks about, which is why I want to cover it here, because nobody talks about it, and really nobody knows about it. Very few people know about it. Um, So I have to give him massive credit for this. Take a look. because first of all, I'm a, I've been a critic of nuclear energy, as everybody knows. I find it a little ridiculous when people try to act like, you know, it's like you shouldn't be a critic. I mean, the criticisms are right in front of you, whether it's what happened with Fukushima or Chernobyl or I always forget whether it's called Five Mile Island or Three Mile Island. But, you know, another uh, nuclear catastrophe there. 
So, yeah, I'm, I'm critical of nuclear energy, um, but I'm not critical of thorium. And I guess thorium is technically nuclear energy as well. <laughs> it's, um, it's basically, and what I've read about it in the past, I believe it was old, uh, an old article from Business Insider, if I remember correctly. I'm going back in the memory bank to like 2013 now. But um, is that it's, it's nuclear technology, but it's basically meltdown proof. So if we can really explore this technology and develop this new technology and get thorium reactors for energy, then, man, that's like a big, that's a big deal. That's a really, really big deal. So, and I'm just amazed that one of the candidates knows about it and one of the candidates is talking about it. Because, again, not many people know about this. This is not something that I've seen, you know, so many articles on, or it's a big topic of conversation. But it's a, it's very promising in that it shows some potential for the future, to get us off of, you know, the way we currently do things, which is absolutely necessary. Now, as far as like the um, relocation of higher ground type stuff, man, isn't it crazy that that's the part of the conversation that we're now having seriously? is like we have to relocate people to higher ground because of climate change because obviously there's no stopping what's going to happen here. Oh, is that dark? That is bleak. That is really, really wild. And I had no idea. He was talking about a Louisiana town that was already relocated. I didn't know that story, but I'm floored. I'm amazed by that. Oh, goodness gracious. Shout out to Andrew Yang for mentioning thorium. I think that's awesome. Um, again, not to be confused with the thorium car, because apparently there was an article on this thorium car that somebody was trying to make that was total nonsense. I'm going back again years now, but just thorium reactors in general for energy. Um, now, what was the other thing I was going to say? Oh, yeah, this is why Andrew Yang, this is why it's good to have him on stage. There was one point last night where he got a laugh where he was like, I know what everybody's thinking. How am I still on stage with these people? <laughs> and it got a good laugh in the crowd and whatnot. But the thing is, Andrew, I wasn't thinking that. I was thinking that about Sayer and Klobuchar. I'm like, why are they still on stage? Because at least you're, all, you're bringing something to the table. They're not bringing anything to the table but the same old failed ideology. Sayer's only up there, Sayer, because he's a billionaire, and Klobuchar is only up there because she's a, a boring neoliberal centrist that's beloved by the establishment and has been relentlessly pushed by, relentlessly pushed by them, and she's still barely hanging on for dear life. So, but you, I see, I can see why people support you. Now, again, everybody knows Andrew Yang is not my candidate, um, but he's unique enough and interesting enough where he hits you with some ideas that you're like, thank goodness somebody's on the stage saying the stuff he's saying. You know, it's like when he he came out for um, all drugs to be decriminalized. That's a bold step, man. But when you're an outsider candidate, you're allowed to say stuff like that, and actually, you'll get more eyeballs if you do say stuff like that because. Again, you're differentiating yourself from the same old nonsense. So, and, so this is the benefit of having him on stage, man, is that he'll throw some curveballs at you, and you'll be like, ooh, okay, okay, I see you, Andrew. But then there also, don't get me wrong, guys, there's also a downside to that. The fact that he's such an independent thinker and the fact that, you know, he's willing to break taboos left and right also leads him to the place where, like, he was doing an interview with Jimmy Dore about a year ago, and Yang is against the $15 minimum wage. Come on, bro. Come on, dog. 
Now, I get it, you know, um, his argument is like, well, we have other ways of reaching the same goal that doesn't necessarily have to be that. Okay, but I also want that. I'm a big fan of that. I'm a big fan of a living wage. So, you know, I love you, Andrew, but sometimes, in my opinion, he misfires. Some of you guys disagree, but, you know, living wage is one of those things that's high on my list, dog. It's high on my list. And even if he wants to get to that same place in a different roundabout way, I'm a fan of the Australia model where they have a living wage. And I think we should have a living wage here as well. Some places in Scandinavia do it where they have like, um, basically everybody's in a union. So everybody gets paid a decent wage. But I'm one of those people who says, why not both? Why not have a living wage and have basically everybody in a union, which guarantees higher wages, better benefits, so on and so forth. So, yeah, every now and then the fact that he's so he's such an independent thinker and he's an outsider leads him to conclusions that I massively disagree with. But God bless. He, you know, it is what it is. He's he's his own man, of course. So he gets to make these decisions. Um, but the upsides are he'll mention thorium. The upsides are, you know, he's bringing UBI into the national conversation, which is wonderful, and I'm very happy that he's doing that. Um, and yep, the upsides are bringing up drug decriminalization and things of that nature, things that in some ways outflank everybody else on stage, which is a good thing overall. So I like his presence. I like that he's still there. But I would like to get rid of Cloud Boot Jar, and uh, I would like to get rid of Styers there and also maybe replace them with Tulsi. But Tulsi looks like she's now tapped out in, in terms of getting into the debates. She announced before this debate, like, even if I qualify, I'm not going. Well, then, you know, don't really know what you're doing from here on out then, to tell you the truth. Don't really know what you're doing. Because she says, oh, I'm staying in until the convention. Why? <laughs> Why? I, I mean, again, I like her, but I, I don't get that. So anyway, I digress. I'm, I'm off in the weeds here now, but there you have it. Andrew Yang brings up thorium, and that's pretty cool. Okay. All right, final one before we take a break. Bernie Sanders was asked a question about gender last night at the debate, uh, but this was asked in a really, really odd way, kind of uncomfortable way. Take a look. Candidates, let's make things interesting. Former President Obama said this week when asked who should be running countries, that if women were in charge, you'd see a significant improvement on just about everything. Sanders, you are the 
do you respond to what the former president has said? I got a lot of respect for Barack Obama. I think I disagree with him on this one. Maybe a little self-serving, but I do disagree. Here is the issue. The issue is where power resides in America. And it's not white or black or male or female. We are living in a nation increasingly becoming an oligarchy. We have a handful of billionaires who spend hundreds of millions of dollars buying elections and politicians. You have more income and wealth inequality today than any time since the 1920s. We are the only major country on earth not to guarantee health care for all people, which is why we need Medicare for all. We are facing an existential crisis of climate change. The issue is not old or young, male or female. The issue is working people standing up, taking on the billionaire class, and creating a government and economy that works for all, not just the 1%. Now, I think that was a good answer, of course. It was handled very well. But that question, man, oh, that question. Oh, that question. I mean, he's saying <laughs> President Obama said women would be better to run the world. So, uh, Bernie, why are you not a woman? <laughs> like, that's, that's, that's the spirit of the question. Enough, enough, enough. By the way, this was not the only, like, goofy question like that. They did a whole block like a whole segment where they ask like three or four different questions on like hey you why are you not a woman hey you why are you not younger hey you why are you not filling other you know identity based thing which the person literally cannot help that they're that that's the thing that drives me crazy man it's like okay so if we're going to do this why not go ahead and ask like why don't you have blue eyes i want you to have blue eyes you don't have blue eyes. Why do you? Why? Why is that? Why is that? What's your shoe size? Oh, oh, you only have a nine and a half size shoe. Why should I have a president with such tiny feet? Huh? Huh? Because they have as much control over that as they do, you know, for everything else. Like, it just it it drives me mad. Stop, ask about policy. Who is this appealing to? Is there really a segment of voters out there that's like, you know, you should ask Bernie why he's not a woman. And by the way, so is the rule now that you're just supposed to step aside if you're a white male? And by the way, he's Jewish, so we could flip it right back on you and say, what an anti-Semitic question. You're not acknowledging the fact that he's a minority as well. But I'm not going to play that game because I'm not a hack. But, like, is that, are those the rules now? Are we supposed to step aside if you're, if you're a white male, that's it? You get, like, points deducted up front, and then we'll ask you in the debate, why are you a white male? I can't, man. I just I can't deal with this. And that's not to say that there aren't unfair disparities in the system as the system exists right now, because there are. And we've spoken about them on this show many times over. I mean, to give one of the classic examples when it comes to race, you have um, white people are more likely to sell drugs. Black people, people are more likely to get arrested for selling drugs. Um, when it comes to smoking marijuana, blacks and whites do it at a similar rate, but black people are, are arrested for it four times more often. I mean, th that's a clear disparity where race 
is a major issue. Race is a major issue in the application of the death penalty, for example. Race is a major issue in the application of mandatory minimums, for example. There's much more sympathy, uh, you know, in general for white people and black people. Those are all things that need to be addressed substantively with policy. And Bernie will address them substantively through policy. Those are all fair questions to ask about that stuff. What's not a fair question to ask is, the former president said women are better at running the world. Bernie, why are you not a woman? And by the way, to Obama, I know, like, you're trying to get your little virtue signaling points and whatnot, but, uh, you know, maybe look into Margaret Thatcher before you talk about this stuff. Maybe look into Marine Le Pen before you talk about this stuff. The idea that, like, you know, all else being equal, just pick based on gender. Really? So would you pick Sarah Palin over Bernie Sanders? It's just not a good point. It's not a good point. It's not a good point. It's not. It's just not. First and foremost comes the policies. First and foremost has to come the policies. Or else you're just, you're literally prioritizing things that people can't control over things they can control, their ideology. You have to put policy first and foremost. Now, do I want a diverse government that's representative of everybody? Absolutely. But I also am not going to sacrifice policy at the altar of identity, because that would be silly. Let's have all the different identities and also policy goals that are reasonable and rational and make sense and would fix the system. It's not diversity, simply for diversity's sake, when the ideology is not there, why would I, what, what am I supposed to, I'm not, stop supporting a living wage because the female doesn't support a living wage. So don't support the male over the female. What? I mean, this is the logical conclusion of the arguments that they're presenting here. So it's just, it's infuriating, man. And this is a lot, like, this is one of those things where the media will push it as if they're representing, like, a giant portion of the left or whatever. But they're not. There's, like, very, very few people on the left who would actually sit there and be like, yes, let's talk for 10 minutes about the gender and the race of the candidates that are running. They ask Andrew Yang, like, you're the last minority on this stage. How does that feel? And they're just, like, throwing him a softball, like, play the victim, go. (laughs) And it's like, okay, yes, we should have diversity. We should have all these different identities. Absolutely no question about it. But the second anybody starts, starts, starts prioritizing that over ideology, instantly lost me, not even having the conversation anymore. And I'm actively pissed off now, too. Actively pissed off. Asking the most, the furthest left-wing candidate on stage and the strongest populist on stage, why are you not a, a female? That's not a fair question. That's not an intelligent question. That's not catering to a certain segment of the left. That's simply sheer, raw, ridiculous stupidity. That's what that is. Okay. Okay. All right, let's take a break, and then when we come back, get ready, y'all, because it is going to be funsies. We are going to get into the, the real brawls. The brawls are coming, baby. The brawls are coming, and you're in the right place to get a breakdown on it. So stay right there. We'll be right back with a bunch of the brawls, and much, much more.
I'm here. What you guys are unaware of is that it's always a struggle to get into the chair because the chair is positioned in such a way that uh, the chair is positioned in such a way that I have to be in an exact spot and I gotta like shimmy into it. Yeah, it's not uh, it's not as simple as it looks. It is not as simple as it looks. All right, so what do we have next here? I believe, like I said before the break, that uh, now is when we jump into the fights. Fight, 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 fight. Yeah, this is this is good. All right, let's get it popping. Elizabeth Warren and uh, Pete Buttigieg uh, went at it on the issue of money and politics and big donors and corruption. And this got testy. This is the exact kind of debate moment stuff that we all wait for. We can't have people who can put down $5,000 for a check drown out the voices of everyone else. You, they Warren. vote in my campaign and they Mayor vote Buttigieg. in my White House. Mayor Buttigieg, your hand goes. Oh. Mayor Buttigieg. Can't help but feel that might have been directed at me. It was, bitch. And here's the thing. We're in the fight of our lives right now. Donald Trump and his allies have made it abundantly clear that they will stop at nothing. Not even foreign interference to hold on to power. They have already put together more than $300 million. This is our chance. This is our only chance to defeat Donald Trump. And we shouldn't try to do it with one hand tied behind our back. Oh, shut the fuck up. Is to bring everybody to our side in this fight. If that means that you're a grad student digging deep to go online to PeteForAmerica.com and chip in 10 bucks, that's great. And if you can drop $1,000 without blinking, that's great, too. We need everybody's help in this fight. I'm not going to turn away anyone who wants to help us defeat Donald Trump. We need Democrats who've been with us all along, yes, but we also need independents worried about the direction of the country. If you're a Republican, disgusted with what's going on in your own party, we're not going to agree on everything but we need you in this fight, and I will welcome you to our side. Thank you, Mr. Mayor. Ain't no Republican voting for you, dog. So the mayor just recently had a fundraiser that was held in a wine cave full of crystals and served $900 a bottle wine. Get his ass. Um, think about who comes for that. He had promised that every fundraiser he would do would be open door. But this one was closed door. We made the decision many years ago that rich people in smoke-filled rooms would not pick the next president of the United States. Billionaires in wine caves should not pick the next president of the United States. Mr. Mayor, your response. You know, according to Forbes magazine, I am literally the only person on this stage who's not a millionaire or a billionaire. So if... This is the problem with issuing purity tests you cannot yourself pass. 
pledge never to be in the company of a progressive Democratic donor, I couldn't be up here. Senator, your net worth is 100 times mine. Now, supposing that you went home feeling the holiday spirit, I know this isn't likely, but stay with me, and decided to oh, go on to peepforamerica.com and give the maximum allowable by law, $2,800. Would that salute my campaign because it came from a wealthy yes, person? No, it would. I would be glad to have that support. We need the support from everybody who is committed to helping yeah. us defeat Donald Trump. I do not sell access to my time. I don't do call time with millionaires and billionaires. Sorry, as a I, don't meet, I don't meet behind closed doors with big dollar donors. And look, I take one that ought to be an easy step for everyone here. I said to anyone who wants to donate to me, if you want to donate to me, that's fine. But don't come around later expecting to be named ambassador. Because that's what goes on in these high-dollar fundraisers. I said no, and I asked everybody on this stage to join me. This ought to be an easy step. And here's the problem. If you can't stand up and take the steps that are relatively easy, can't stand up to the wealthy and well-connected when it's relatively easy when you're a candidate, then how can the American people believe you're going to stand up to the wealthy and well-connected when you're president and it's really hard? It is a good fight. Bucks 
and they're a teacher, that's not corrupting. 100 bucks, still not corrupting. 300 bucks, still not corrupting. They're a teacher. What do they want? But, you know, um, slightly better pay? Like, that, that would be you representing your voters, and your voters would be your donors in that instance. But where's the line where it's like, okay, now it gets a little iffy. You know, 1000 bucks. the legal limit is $2,800 now. Um, you know, it's theoretically possible you got a construction worker who saved up and is donating $2,800 to Bernie or whatever. Um, and, you know, you could argue that's not corrupting. But as a general rule, you know, if it's corporate PAC money, it comes with strings attached. And when it's big money bundling dinners, it comes with strings attached. Because the big money bundling dinners is like, oh, let's invite all of these different employees from Citibank and, you know, sit around with them, and they'll each donate the max to you, and then that's a de facto bribe, so when you're in office, God forbid they need another bailout, you're right there to help them out. So there is a question as to what's the dollar limit, what's the line for it to be corrupting or not corrupting, but as a general rule, the more small dollar donations a candidate takes, the better. Now, Mayor Pete has gone all in on the old school model. He's acting like we never had this revolution where everybody's now aware of the corruption, and he acts like, well, I'm doing just the same thing that Obama did. I'm doing, yeah, and that was a problem because Obama bailed out Wall Street to the tune of $14 trillion. Obama appointed his cabinet largely based off of recommendations from Citibank. So, yeah, that's a problem. You can't, and so when he calls it a purity test, it drives me crazy. Now, having said all that, I should theoretically take the side of Mayor Pete in this argument. Why? Because you could argue Warren is a bigger threat uh, than Mayor Pete in the election overall. So, you know, oh, I hope that, you know, Warren goes up in the polls, or, or I hope that Mayor Pete goes up in the polls and Warren goes down in the polls. But listen, as a matter of principle, I think she's more correct than he is. However, he does make a good point there at the end when he's like, I know you recently changed your mind on this, but hey, dog, you raised a lot of money when you ran for Senate in these same dinners that I went to, and then you transferred that money into the general election, into your, um, excuse me, your primary election for president. So you were for these big money fundraisers before you were against it. That's kind of (laughs) true. That is kind of true. So he got you on that one, but it is fair to say that she's not doing those anymore. And I think that her track record, I mean, granted, you're just the mayor of South Bend, Indiana, but her track record in terms of standing up to Wall Street is much better than yours. And I I would have way more faith and confidence in Elizabeth Warren to stand up to Wall Street and raise taxes on the rich than I would you. I have other concerns about her, like foreign policy, but she would be way tougher on these special interests than you would ever be. And I have no doubt about that. Now, let's go through some of the other articles. Um, he says, oh, we don't want to run against Trump with one hand tied behind our back. Again, you're, that's not an adequate response when the concern about this money is that it's de facto bribes and it's corruption. If your response is, well, I don't want to have one hand tied behind my back, that's not a good reason to accept a bribe. You're saying, ah, bro, I had no choice. I had to accept a bribe. That's not going to land with people. You have to actually address the point. And that's the problem. Like, this happens all the time in politics where people talk over each other's head, heads. Honestly, another example of it is on abortion. Because the right wing is like, or I should say many people on the right, because some are pro-abortion, but a lot of people on the right are like, oh, it's murder. And then on the left, everybody goes, it's a choice. But that didn't address what they said, because they said it's murder, so now you have to explain to them how it is not murder before you get to the other point about, I think it's a choice, and here's why. 
But oftentimes, they'll just talk over each other. Oh, it's murder. Uh, it's, it's a choice. Do you, get, do you have a choice to commit murder? No, that's not a choice. It's an option. If something's murder, there's no choice there. You're not allowed to do it. Full stop. So if they think it's murder, you have to explain to them why it's not murder first and then get to it. And it's like that the, the unwillingness to address the point directly is driving me crazy. We don't want to have one hand tied behind our back, so I have to take bribes and be massively corrupt. That's not a response to what the argument is. The argument is it's, corrupt, it's a corrupting thing. So you have to address that first, and he doesn't address that. Um, and then, of course, he says, well, tr Trump's really bad, which is, you know, uh, how many times are we going to hear that same nonsense? We get it. We know he's really bad. That's a given, bro. Now what are you going to do about it? Um, and then he says, you know, no, um, you know, I'll, oh, I'll accept help from anybody. And if, even if somebody's like an independent, we need you. Even if somebody's, a, a, you know, a Republican, we need you. Pete. You ain't, you ain't converting no Trump supporters. <laughs> you ain't converting no Trump supporters, no Republicans, no nothing. You are like the stereotype of the elitist, out-of-touch Democrat. So, you know, and it's funny because he does the same thing that Klobuchar does. Like, I'm from the Midwest, as if, like, that's enough to get Trump voters to switch to him. No, we know who does best with Trump voters, who flips Trump voters. Bernie Sanders, Andrew Yang, and Tulsi Gabbard. Those, those are the ones who flip them. And they also, well, at least in the case of Bernie, holds the base as well. So, you know, he's uniquely set up electorally to be um, the most dangerous against the Republicans. So I just find it funny that he's floating like, you know, I'll even accept support from Republicans. Ain't no Republicans supporting you unless they're the CEO of a giant corporation. Um, and then uh, he gets to the wine cave point. That was a devastating point, and I'm happy that Elizabeth Warren brought it up because it is such – I mean, it's just the optics of it. The reality of it is bad enough because it is – that's just one giant circle jerk of money and power and elitism and corruption. And, you know, she brings it up. And he – I guarantee you, immediately after that debate, he was sitting around like, why did I do the wine cave fundraiser? I shouldn't have done the wine cave fundraiser. And to that I respond to him. You're damn skippy you shouldn't have done that fundraiser because you're overreaching. He's just, he's just used to this spotlight now, and he doesn't understand that, like, no, 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 now we're, we're looking at you, son. We're looking at you. We're looking at what you're doing. And it, it, it says a lot when that's the company that you keep. You know, that's the exact opposite of Bernie Sanders. Again, his average donation this time is $18. You know, uh, Mayor Pete is just... He's a caricature. He's a caricature of the out-of-touch Wall Street Democrat. So I'm happy that Elizabeth Warren brought up the wine cave, and I hope they keep bringing it up. Bernie Sanders surrogates, after the debate, were wearing a Pete's wine cave shirt. <laughs> oh, that's troll-level A+. I love that stuff. Um, and then the final points are, he got people in the audience were like, Ugh, when he made the point about, you know, uh, as you're getting into the holiday spirit, which I know is not likely, uh, it's like every now and then Pete will, like, his mask will slip. He reminds me a little bit of Christian Bale from American Psycho. It's like he's trying to keep it together, trying to keep it together, and every now and then the mask will slip, and he'll just show his true colors. And I feel like that was one of those moments right there. He's like, you know, as you're trying to get into the holiday spirit, I know that's not likely. And everybody's like, ew, like, what do you say? Like, what a random, weird, obnoxious, personal shot at her. Like saying, oh, you obviously have no joy, and you're, like, stuck up. Actually, when I look at you, Pete, I think more of that than when I look at Elizabeth Warren. But even the audience was like, ooh. Like, it was a moment of, like, that was uncomfortable. Why are you doing that? He's had this a few times. 
like, you know, one time he said to Beto, like, I don't need a, I don't need a lecture from you, of all people. Everybody's like, ooh. Because <laughs> uh, when the mask slips, he just comes across as, like, mean. And not mean in an entertaining way like Trump. Trump can be mean, but you're also laughing. Uh, he's just mean, and it's just flat mean. It's, there's no, like, redeeming, charming quality about it. Uh, and then the final one is the personal wealth point. That's such a hacky point, man, because you totally switched the conversation. Nobody was talking about personal wealth. Nobody was attacking you for your personal wealth. Nobody on the stage was attacking anybody for their personal wealth. Never happened. Never happened once. The conversation is about bribery and corruption. Where are you raising your campaign funds from? So when you bring up, oh, your net worth is higher than mine, I don't care. Her politics are to the left of yours. Guys, FDR came from a wealthy family. He was famously called a traitor to his class. He also famously uh, said that, you know, I welcome the hatred of, of the Wall Street banks. So the, the personal wealth situation, that's not the end-all, be-all. I mean, yes, you could say the billionaires who bought their way on stage, that's super concerning. But the thing that's concerning is that they bought their way on stage. That's the concerning part. part. It's certainly theoretically possible for somebody to be a billionaire and to say, I want social democracy, and I think you should tax me at a higher rate, and I want universal health care and free college and a living wage. That's all possible. Nobody brought up personal wealth on stage. You just brought it up. So she's talking about your corruption and your bribery and the fact that you're behind the scenes with these elitists and these CEOs and you're raising money, and who are you likely to represent? That's what she's talking about. And his response is, oh, yeah, well, you're personally wealthy. I don't care. I don't care about that. Her politics are to the left of yours. So he's switching the conversation while trying to present it like he's not doing that. He's trying to act like, no, 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 I'm staying on topic here. That's not on topic. The topic is campaign donations. How are you raising your money? And you're going to freaking wine cave fundraisers where people are $900 bottle of wine and, you know, eating expensive dinners and throwing money around, giving the legal max. And, you know, you're likely to represent that crowd. So that's the conversation, personal wealth. He's bringing a personal wealth to her. Oh, please. Bernie Sanders is worth more than Mayor Pete. And that's indicative of what? Absolutely nothing. Dickie McGee's act. Because Bernie Sanders' policies would be much better for middle class people, for poor people, for your average American. I mean, it's like, that shouldn't even need to be said, but apparently it does. Because, and here's the point, guys. Mayor Pete, with his massively disingenuous arguments, they do not stop. Okay, next. I got more fights, baby. More fights. More fights. Let's, let's go to Bernie first with his grassroots fundraising. And his billionaire, he goes after the goes after the billionaires. Bernie Sanders went inski last night on his grassroots fundraising, and you love to see it. I am rather proud, maybe I don't know. The only chance I know doesn't have any billionaire contributions, but you know what I do have? We have received more contributions from more individuals than any candidate in the history of the United States of America at this point in an election, averaging $18 a piece. 
finance it, my friend. He's received contributions from 34 billionaires. Pete, on the other hand, is trailing, Pete. You only got 39 billionaires contributing. So, Pete, we look forward to you. I know you're an energetic guy and a competitive guy to see if you can take on Joe on that issue. But what is not... What is not a laughing matter, my friends, this is why three people own more wealth than the bottom half. This is why Amazon and other major corporations pay zero in federal taxes. We need to get money out of politics. We should run our campaigns on that basis. God, I love that. Oh, my God. That's so good. (laughs) That's so good. Inject that straight into my veins, dog. Inject it straight into my veins. (sighs) Listen, Bernie Sanders, there was even a story that came out about a month ago. I feel like every time I mention that, the story came out a month ago. But anyway, no, seriously, it was about a month ago. (laughs) Maybe two at most. Um, There was a a billionaire who donated to him, I want to say $400, or it may have been $475. I don't remember the exact number, but that's roughly the ballpark, okay? Bernie and his campaign, they returned the donation to the billionaire and said, I apologize, I can't, I can't take this. Now, If there's a billionaire who's actually donating to Bernie Sanders, let's keep it real. It's very likely that that billionaire is like the one out of 100 billionaires who is like, no, seriously, I want you to take like most of my money. (laughs) And I want want to do Medicare for all and free college and a living wage. And I want to end the wars and I want a Green New Deal. Like it is one of the billionaires who's like low key is like, I I shouldn't even be a billionaire, bro. This is ridiculous. (laughs) So. It's likely, and I don't know the one, the person's name or else I'd mention it and I'd give him credit and all that stuff. But anyway, I digress. Point is, he returned the money, even though it was like just 400 or 400 and whatever dollars. And he did it specifically so that he would be able to make this point on stage. Where he says, listen, it's a matter of principle for me. So it, basically, guys, the idea is I'm going to go above and beyond, not only to not be corrupt, but also to get rid of even the possibility of the optics of being corrupt. Man, is that special. Nobody else on stage you Did you know Elizabeth Warren, I forget the exact number, but she has a handful of billionaire donors too. Now, in her case, I don't know, maybe it's a similar situation to like the Bernie situation where it's like, you know, they're relatively decent people as billionaires. And they're like, no, seriously, tax me a lot more and all that stuff because she supports a wealth tax. So, you know, they have to support that at least to some extent if they're donating her. But still, she, wasn't, she didn't have the foresight to say, no, 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 I'm going to return all billionaire donations because I'm drawing a red line. No billionaire donations. That's just so badass, man. It really is. It really is. This dude went above and beyond to be like, no, no, no. I am like the purest in terms of fundraising. He's made a point of, over the years, he takes no corporate PAC money. He's taken PAC money, but it was only like union PACs. And I think he's done that because he simply ideologically lines up with the union. Now, you could still make a case of, like, well, any PAC money is bad money. I hear you on that. That's a fair point. That's certainly debatable. I would say union PACs are obviously a lot better than corporate PACs because the interests of the unions and the policies they prefer might just align with Bernie Moore. Um, but he's taken no corporate PAC money, and now he's made a point of no billionaire money. And obviously he never does big money bundling dinners. 
So the dude is totally funded through small dollar donors. Totally funded through small dollar donors. And by the way, guys, I am very proud to be a monthly um, recurring donor to Bernie Sanders. And I hope you are too. I'm going to be honest with you guys. I hope you are too. Because uh, this is a once in a generation opportunity. Because what he what he's doing is repping that old school FDR social democratic ideology. And FDR was so damn popular, he won four times and died in office and made the Republicans go, you know, we kind of need something like term limits because I don't think we could beat the Democrats if they all run like, like this. If they all agree with this philosophy, we'll never win an election again. That's what was going on in their minds. That's what they thought. Well, we got to do term limits. What are we going to do? And so Bernie Sanders represents that. So not only is it good politics where you're going to win all the time, it's also good policy because he's just calling for the basics, man. And I love that. See, this is the kind of stuff, in terms of the strategy here, it's brilliant because I've said for a long time now, Bernie needs to get more aggressive. And I'm a big fan of bringing up specifics like this. So when he says 44 billionaires for Biden, everybody's like, ooh, 44? Like, it, it clicks. It makes it real to people. Oh, Pete, 39? Really? 39 billionaires? The other thing I would do is, um, and I hope they're watching, but the, only, the other thing I would do is give the specific dollar amounts. So, you know, a fact that I learned the other day from a story we covered is Mayor Pete has taken $97,000 from Big Pharma and the for-profit health insurance industry and various like executives, vice presidents, so on and so forth from those companies. If I was Bernie, that would be something I dropped in the middle of a debate with Mayor Pete on healthcare. Pete, I know why you have the position you have, It's at least in part because you took $97,000 from the industry. So you're representing them. You know who I'm representing? The people. I'm only funded by the people. You're funded by the industry to the tune of $97,000. No wonder you're not in favor of Medicare for all anymore. No wonder you flipped and now you're in favor of Medicare for all who want it. Because you watered down the bill so they get to keep making their corporate profits. Dude, this is good. This is good. This is good. I mean, this is good. (laughs) What do you want me to tell you, bro? This is good. Keep bringing up those specifics. Keep bringing up the dollar amount. Point at all the candidates. And you took this much from this industry. You took this much from this industry. I didn't. I didn't. That's how you become the last one standing. And honestly, it reminds me of when Donald Trump was on stage with the other Republicans. And he's like, I bought you, I bought you, and I bought you. Because they had no response. Because they didn't think that Trump would violate that gentleman's agreement in politics of like, we're all part of the club, so everybody, don't hit below the belt. He's like, oh, I'm going way below the belt, bro. What are you talking about? That's how I win, is I'm going to go below the belt. I'm going to tell everybody the way this really works. I'm going to tell everybody the way the sausage is really made. It worked. This can work too. And I love to see it. Okay. Next motherfucker. Amy Klobuchar and Mayor Pete sniped at each other and got into uh, a debate last night. And this exchange in particular 
is hilarious because you can tell that they're pissed at each other, but there's really they don't have the policy substance there to back it up in their sniping. So you can see how little substance there is, even though they're going at each other's throats. Take a look. I made my case on immigration to what the mayor said um, about Washington. So I look at this a different way. When we were in the last debate, Mayor, uh, you uh, basically mocked uh, the 100 years of experience on the state. And what do I see on this day? I see Elizabeth work starting the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau and helping 29 million people. I see the Vice President's work in getting uh, $2 billion for his cancer moonshot. I see Senator Sanders' work of working to get the veterans bill passed across the aisle. And I see what I've done, uh, which is to negotiate three farm bills and be someone that actually had major provisions put in those bills. So while you can dismiss committee hearings, I think this experience works, and I have not denigrated your experience as a local official. I have been one. You know, I just think you should respect right. our experience when you look at how you evaluate
Kershaw was right at the end there. He's like, you're, you're talking about winning in Indiana. You didn't win in Indiana. You won in South Bend, Indiana, which I, I believe is a college town, which goes blue all around the country. They, that goes blue. Man, listen. Pete, when he's in a corner, what did he do? First time he was in a corner, I was a veteran. Respect my experience. That's not relevant to the conversation. I'm sorry, guys, but let's keep it real. Being a veteran in and of itself is not a qualification for president. Now, it can be if you marry it with a bunch of other stuff, but just being a veteran. I was a veteran. And then, and then, so if by that logic is anybody who was ever in the military, are they all qualified for president? Because that's the argument Mayor Pete is making. He's like, oh, my experience counts. Why, see, this is, this is what I mean when I say their, their sniping was, like, not substantive. Because why are we even having a conversation just about experience? I find that so tedious and so ridiculous. The guy who's president now was a game show host. So it turns out experience in terms of how much it's valued by people, it's non-existent. That's, it's not something that people have high on their list at all. And you could even make an argument that now the more of an outsider you are, the less you've been involved in politics, the more people like you because they think the system is so corrupt that if you've been part of it, you're tainted by it. So even having the conversation of experience is silly. But it does say something that, like, when he feels like he's in a corner because she's saying, oh, I have the experience you don't, he goes, yeah, well, I was a veteran. I swore an oath to lay down my life to protect the Constitution. These are really, like, they're really, like, underhanded, weird, misleading arguments. They're just slimy. They're not, like... It's going back to the old playbook of like, oh, if I say I'm a veteran, she can't respond to that. And then at the end, what did he do? Again, in a corner, I'm gay. How is that relevant to the conversation? How's that relevant? How's that relevant? Man. Don't tell me he's not trying to take shortcuts because that's exactly what that is. He's trying to take shortcuts. Okay, but now to Cloud Boot Jar, because I'm not, you know, no fan of her. She's the one who starts the conversation about experience, 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 experience. Hillary Clinton was probably one of the most experienced presidential candidates ever, and she got her ass handed to her by a game show host. So again, not necessarily the most important thing. Um, Then the conversation just becomes, you know, oh, I can win. Klobuchar's, and she said this throughout the debate, oh, I can win because I'm, I'm from the Midwest. And then your geographic location is not an argument in your favor. I'm just, I'm floored by the fact that they managed to go back and forth for an extended period of time there. And at no point was healthcare mentioned. (laughs) At no point was the economy mentioned or jobs. At no point was foreign policy, war mentioned. Like this is the unserious politics, which leads me to like understand why some people tune out. Because I think, honestly, people are under, underestimated by the establishment as if, like, well, you know, distract the pores and then move along here. Like, just get the peasants to fall in line and then move along here. It's like, no, people actually are probably watching this and listening to this thinking, oh, who could help improve my life situation, myself and my neighbors? But instead, it's, you know, my experience. Oh, yeah, the Constitution. I was a veteran. Oh, yeah? Well, I can win, and I'm not so sure you can win. 
oh, yeah, well, I'm gay, and I won in Mike Pence's Indiana, even though I didn't win in all of Indiana. I won in a small town. I got, like, 7,000 votes. Guys, that's, that's how many votes he got. He got, like, 7,000 votes. I can tell you guys I'm running for president as a goof and say write in my name, and I would get more than 7,000 votes. <laughs> so what's he doing? That's so, like, you have to be misleading and just to make it appear like, like, I'm serious and I should be on this stage. And by the way, that goes right back to his, remember he released his plan for uh, black America, but then he lied about getting black endorsements. And, you know, some of the people he cited, the media spoke to them and they were like, I did not endorse this at all. I don't, this is kind of crazy that he just signed my name on. And then they said, oh, we sent them an email and told them you have X amount of time to opt out, opt out of your support of this. So the default assumption was they support it, and then they have to opt out of it? Are you kidding me? It shows he's willing to be dishonest. That's what it shows. And um, it's just funny when you have two giant egos clashing like these two, but they don't really have much to say. So they're just like making noises and not really advancing any particular cause. It really does lead you. It does this for me, for sure. It leads me to really recognize and appreciate the four candidates. Bernie Sanders, who obviously is running on Medicare for all and reducing income inequality and getting rid of the corruption. Like, those are his big things. Andrew Yang is running on UBI. Agree or disagree with it, you know what he's running on. You know it. Tulsi, who's running on ending the wars. And Warren, who's running on her wealth tax and and regulating Wall Street. Now, you know, I, I have many disagreements with Warren, but still, at least I know what she's running on. These two, it's just like, pick me because I'm me. I don't give a look. <laughs> I don't give a look. <laughs> what do you want me to tell you? I don't care. Okay. Okie dokie, bitch. Let's go to the next shit. All right, now uh, we got more fights on free college this time. I keep, I gotta keep fucking changing this thing behind me, and it's driving me crazy. You drive me crazy. Shout out to everybody who remembers that song. The candidates got into it over the notion of free college again. Mayor Pete does this in every debate. He kept making the same terrible argument against it that he's made a hundred times over. So uh, Bernie and Warren got in on the response here. Take a look. I very much agree with Senator Warren on raising more tax revenue from millionaires and billionaires. I just don't agree on the part about spending it on millionaires and billionaires when it comes to their college tuition. Thank you, Thank you very much. Wait, 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 wait. No, he mentioned me.
are nibbling around the edges of a huge student loan debt burden that disproportionately affects people of color. African Americans are more likely to have to borrow money to go to school, more likely to borrow more money while they're in school, and have a harder time paying it off. We want to make an investment in the future that open up education for all of our kids. That's how you do it. Recently, I believe in the concept of universality. And one of the crises in America today is people are sick and tired of filling out forms. So you're not eligible for the program today because you're 150, but you lost your job, are you eligible? You get a better job, you're eligible. I think what we have to do is what we do with Social Security, what we do with public education. Donald Trump's kids can go to a public school. They should be able to go to a public school. What we need right now is a revolution in education. We have got to end the dysfunctional child care system and make sure that every working class person in this country can find high-quality, affordable child care. We need to make public colleges and universities tuition-free and by taxing billionaires and by taxing Wall Street, we will cancel all student debt in this country. Yeah, so that was good. Um, I like Bernie's defense of universal programs there. That's a bold, strong defense of universal programs. And, you know, I'm, I'm of the same belief. I think that uh, very basic things should be universal. And this is, you know, the heart of social democracy is that you still have a, a market economy and some things are still in the private sector, but some of the basics of life are kind of off the table and, the pu- and part of the public sector. And I really, really like that idea, and I think it's empirically proven around the world to function very well, and those societies kick our butts in many uh, relevant metrics, including quality of life, among others. So that's why I'm very you know, hostile towards the candidates who oppose this notion, because I think it's really hacky to oppose this notion. Because, like, what do you really stand for? And the answer is, they're neoliberals. They believe way more in privatization, and they're not even sold that very basic things should be out of the marketplace. Um, you know, a lot of people listen to this show, and they're to the left of me. And they go well to the left of social democracy. But as I've stated, ultimately I'm an empiricist, and I think whatever you can show me to work is the thing that I'm going to support. And as of right now, the Scandinavian countries strike me as the, as the most successful in the world, and they have social democratic systems. So I believe in social democracy, and I think that's basically what Bernie Sanders is advocating for. And when you have these people who are calling for the same kind of neoliberal tweaks to the system, it's like, well, that's what we've always had, and people are really struggling right now, so that's not enough. And by the way, I'm very like, kind to people who, as long as people agree on the basic social democratic stuff, I see no reason to harshly go after them. I think we actually should unify insofar as you believe in those social democratic programs. But if you don't, then yes, I'm going to come after you aggressively because I think you're dead wrong. And I think that's the main, that's the main split in the party is the neoliberal corporate centrists and uh, the social democrats. That's the real split. That's the real split in the party. And the closest, to a, the closest candidate to a pure form of social democracy is Bernie Sanders. So since that's the split, yeah, if you're on the 
opposite side of that divide, I'm going to come after you and I'm going to come after you aggressively. But if you're on our side of that, then no, I, I'm relatively, you know, I'm relatively calm and I'm going to believe more in unity and coming together, even if we have other disagreements. Um, but the point about universality and when he brings up uh, filling out forms, that's a great point. And honestly, we should make that point more because it's true, man. Like, even, even when it comes to healthcare, he's talking about college there, I think, but even when it comes to healthcare, like, it is obnoxious. Every year you have to re-up the healthcare, and I don't know about you guys, but I don't have choice. No matter what plan I pick, there's, I can only go to certain doctors in network, and I don't have the choice of going to whatever doctor I want. They narrow my choices massively. So you've got to fill out all this unnecessary paperwork that's really obnoxious. You have to choose what you want covered, which is preposterous. I just want everything covered if I get sick, full stop. Don't give me choice. Like, how ridiculous is that? Cover everything. It's like a fire department saying, well, what rooms do you want covered? No, I want the whole thing covered. Well, you got to fill out all these forms, and you don't even have the choice of what doctor you want to go to. Medicare for all gets rid of all the forms, and you can go to any doctor you want. So really, it's the social democratic position that in many ways gives you more choice, which I know is counterintuitive, but it's true. And, you know, I've, I know people who are doctors who say, I hate the insurance company forms, but the Medicare stuff is so much easier. I get tired with the forms, enough with the forms. Everything's got to be like means tested. Oh, the, do you fall above the income threshold or below the income threshold? Do you apply for partial, you know, relief or total relief? And it's like, what a dystopian nightmare this is. Just take the basic things off the table and call it a day, man. And, but now to address Mayor Pete, I don't want to do this again, but I'll do it again very quickly because he just keeps making this disingenuous argument of like, oh, free college, you know, I want to pay for free college, but only for people who need the free college. I don't want to pay for the free college of the kids of millionaires and billionaires. <laughs> it's, it's a pseudo-populist argument he's trying to make. He's trying to make me? I'm tougher on the rich than these guys. But that's really not what he's doing. He's covering for a terrible plan. So, first of all, uh, the kids of rich families are much more likely to go to private college so that's one point, is they probably won't even be going to public college. But the next point is, and uh, Warren points this out, the rich folks under these plans would pay way more in taxes. So they wouldn't be paying just for their kid to go to free public college. It would be like their kid plus like 100 others because their taxes would be raised to help fund, for, fund this measure. So it's just not a good response when you say, oh, if we have free college, then you're paying for the kids of millionaires and billionaires. Actually, no, when you have free college, they're paying not only for their kid, but for your kid too. They're subsidizing people who don't make as much money as they do. It's redistribution, which makes sense. In some ways, redistribution is perfectly reasonable. Everybody's in favor of it to one extent or another. The question is, how far do you go? Where do you draw that line? So it's just a bad point because they're paying for more than just their own kid. Um, and the other point, of course, that people make is it's harder to cut the programs when they're universal, because when they're not universal, it's welfare, and welfare is always the first thing on the chopping block when it comes to budget cuts. But if it's universal, it's much harder to cut because everybody benefits. Um, and then you also have the point that K-12, to we already have free. So if Mayor Peach really being consistent in his logic and he really believes, like, no, 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 I, I stop, stop giving everybody free college. If they're, if they're rich kids, then they shouldn't get this. Okay, well, then if you believe that, 
why do we have free K to 12? Because the kids of rich families can go to free K to 12 if they want. Are you want do you want to get rid of that? Do you want everything to go towards a model of non-universality and means testing? If you're being consistent, you would say yes. What it really should be is preschool to 16 free. It should be that. And by the way, trade school, because that's also massively important. So anyway, and a final, final thing is Elizabeth Warren's defending, like, the left position here. But just so you know, Bernie's plans go further. Like, her um, student debt elimination plan doesn't eliminate all student debt. Bernie's does. So just so you know, even though they're both arguing from the same position there, his plans go further than hers does, and I think that needs to be pointed out. Okay, we're almost done with the uh, with the debate stuff here, but let's go to a fight with uh, my dad Bernard Sanders. My dad Bernard Sanders versus um, versus Biden. Biden and Bernie spoke about the war in Afghanistan. And some interesting points were made here in the back and forth. Let's dive into it. Confidential documents published last week by the Washington Post revealed that for years, senior U.S. officials misled the public about the war in Afghanistan. As Vice President, what did you know? Yes, Afghanistan. As Vice President, what did you know about the state of the war, and do you believe that you were honest with the American people about it? The reason I can speak to this is well known, if any of you follow me, to my view on Afghanistan. I was sent by the president before we got sworn in to Afghanistan to come back with a report. I said there was no comprehensive policy available, and then I got in a big fight for a long time with the Pentagon because I strongly opposed the nation-building notion we set about. Rebuilding that country as a, as a whole nation is beyond our capacity. I argued from the very beginning that we should have a policy that was based on an anti-terrorism policy with a very small footprint that, in fact, only had special forces to deal with potential threats from that territory to the United States of America. The first thing I would do as President of the United States of America is to make sure that we brought all combat troops home, entered into a negotiation with the Taliban, but I would leave behind special forces in small numbers to be able to deal with the potential threat unless we got a real good negotiation accomplished to deal with terrorism. That's been my position from the beginning. That's why I think Secretary Gates and some members of the Pentagon weren't happy with me. Mr. Biden, the question was about your time in the White House, though. And in, that, about the White House. in that Washington Post report, there's a senior national security official who said that there was constant pressure from the Obama White House to produce figures showing the troop surge was working, and I'm quoting from the report here, despite hard evidence to the contrary. What do you think? Since 2009, go back and look, I was on the opposite side of that with the Pentagon. The only way I can speak to it now is because it's been published. It's been published thoroughly. I'm the guy from the beginning who argued that it was a big, big mistake to surge forces to Afghanistan, period. We should not have done it. And I argued against it constantly. Senator Sanders, did you hand up? Well, with all due respect to my to Joe, Joe, you're also the guy who helped lead us 
disastrous war in Iraq. What we need to do is, I think, rethink, and, and the Washington Post piece was very educational. What we need to think, rethink is the entire war on terror. We have lost thousands of our own men and women, brave soldiers, hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people have been killed abroad or forced to leave their countries. It is time right now that we bring this world together to try to end these endless wars and address the root causes which are causing these wars. Senator Sanders, you, you do often point to your vote against the war in Iraq as evidence of your judgment on foreign policy, but you did vote for the war in Afghanistan, and as recently as 2015, you said you supported a continued U.S. troop presence there. Was that support a mistake? Well, only one person, my good friend Barbara Lee, was right on that issue. She was the only person in the House to vote against the war in Afghanistan. She was right. I was wrong. So was everybody else in the House. But to answer your question, I don't think you do what Trump does and make foreign policy decisions based on a tweet at 3 a.m. in the morning or desert your longtime allies like the Kurds. I think you work with the international community. You remove all troops over a period of time, a short period of time, within one year. So this was a very substantive part of the debate, clearly. Um, and there were a few noteworthy things there. Uh, Bernie flat out saying, I was wrong to vote in favor of the Afghanistan war. That's a big deal. Because for the longest time, um, the notion that everybody seemed to agree with to one extent or another is like, and o Obama won on this message when he ran. Oh, Iraq was the stupid war. Afghanistan was the smart war. And so obviously we all agree that Afghanistan made sense because we had to get back Osama bin Laden and Al-Qaeda for what they did here on 9-11. But just Iraq was the wrong war. Saddam Hussein had nothing to do with it. So, like, you know, don't go into Iraq, but Afghanistan's a good idea. And, in fact, Obama, of course, did the massive troop surge in Afghanistan. So for Bernie to say, no, actually, Barbara Lee was right, and we shouldn't have gone into Afghanistan either, that, that means there's a big shift now, even on the Afghanistan war, in the sense that a long time ago, the public turned on the Iraq war, and they turned on the Afghanistan war a while ago, too, but now it's so, it's solidified now. It's really solidified. We covered the story. This goes back to, honestly, the poll came out in like 2013, but only 17% of the American people still want to be in Afghanistan. 17%. Guys, that means it's more unpopular than the war in Vietnam. In Vietnam. And we're still there. Now, in those Afghanistan papers, what we found out was, and this also gets back to Biden, by the way, we found out that every step of the way we were being lied to. So throughout the entire, all the Obama years, obviously Bush lied to us, but throughout the Obama years we were lied to. Now even under the Trump administration we're being lied to. Um, when Obama did the surge, the administration would make disingenuous arguments. And they in part got this from the Bush administration when they did the surge in Iraq too. Um, they would say, if the violence ticked up, they would say, oh, that's a good sign because it shows that they're desperate and they're in their last throes and we're going to win. But then when the violence would go down, they would say, oh, so we defeated them. That's a good sign. It means we're winning. And then the violence would just keep yo-yoing. 
Sometimes it'd go down, sometimes it'd go up, but the response would always be from the administration in these committee hearings, you got the you know, military people dressed in their uniforms, talking, acting very serious. They would always say the same thing. We need more time. We need more time. We need more time. We're winning, but we need more time. We need more time. So they would say we need more time. They would never give concrete goals. So they're asking for more time, but they're not giving you when the theoretical scenario, when they could declare victory and come home. And also, every time they came there, they would say we're winning, regardless of what's happening on the ground. So everybody should have noticed it at the time. That's a massive contradiction. You can't say we're winning when the violence goes up and we're winning when the violence goes down, because then it's a non-falsifiable claim, and obviously you're saying we're winning no matter what. But they did that. Joe Biden was part of the administration that lied to everybody every step of the way. So when he says here, no, 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 I was on the opposite side of that. Okay, so then if we take you at your word, you were massively, massively ineffective at convincing your president, when you're the VP, that what he's doing is dead wrong. So either Joe Biden is lying here and he was actively on the wrong side, which, by the way, I think that's much more likely to be the case. But even if you take him at his word, okay, then you were terribly ineffective at imposing your will and convincing the president to do the right thing. Either way, I'm I'm not going to roll the dice on somebody who's wrong on Iraq and wrong on Afghanistan and somebody who who doesn't learn those lessons going forward. Because, like, now, what'd you get? You saw with Hillary, too. It's like, oh, yeah, yeah, totally. We learned the lesson of Iraq. You don't wage illegal and offensive wars against a country that didn't attack us. And then, like, two minutes later, by the way, we need to go uh, topple the Syrian government. What? How do you not see the contradiction? It, that drives me crazy. That drives me crazy. But here's the bottom line. Biden, of course, would be business as usual. Absolutely would be business as usual. And now we know, yeah, you can say one of the wrong votes that Bernie took was for the war in Afghanistan. I think that's totally fair to say now because we relied to every step of the way. By the way, what happened? They said, oh, we just got to get Saddam Hussein. Well, you got Saddam Hussein, and why are we still in Iraq? Why are we still there? You achieved that original goal that you said we were going to. And after we killed him, nobody was even like, all right, well, now let's come home. Everybody's just like, I guess we're just there permanently. In Afghanistan, it was, we got to go to Osama bin Laden. We got Osama bin Laden a long time ago. And by the way, when we got him, he was in Pakistan, not in Afghanistan. So, again, we achieved our goal, and we're still there. It's almost like it also has something to do with oil in the case of Iraq trillions in mineral wealth in the case of Afghanistan, um, the military-industrial complex making money, and geopolitics and making sure we keep a stranglehold on that region and stopping the influence of Russia at the same time. Like, that's really what goes into it. And, um, but I find Biden's, like, fake mea culpas totally unconvincing. I think he was actively on the wrong side of a lot of these things, and I think he would continue down the path of business as usual in the same way Trump is doing. Trump ran on like, oh, I'm going to get out of the stupid wars. We're still in the wars. We're still there. So they all get cucked by the Pentagon and the military-industrial complex. They all do it. So you need somebody to go in there with strong convictions. No, this is wrong, and we're going to get out. You need that. You need somebody to stand up to them. I certainly don't think you're going to get that with Biden. Okay.
Okie dokie beach. Next. Let's go to the healthcare debate. This was another super heated one. Bernie and Biden had a heated back and forth here. They really went in on the issue of healthcare. This got testy, this got interesting, and I have a lot to say about it. Okay, we're going to have a plan. We'll save. Okay, we're going to have a plan. We'll save. Okay, we're going to have a plan. We'll save. Okay, we're going to have a plan. We'll save. Okay, we're going to have a plan. We'll save. Okay, we're going to have a
just so everybody knows, at least at this point right now, it's increasingly coming down to Biden versus Bernie in the polls. It's looking like it might be a two-person race flat out very shortly. There's some people in striking distance enough to make a move at it, like maybe barely hanging on is Warren and, and Buttigieg, but right now it's Bernie and Biden's kind of separating themselves. So you're looking at really the heart of the debate here for the primary. And, oh, man, it's kind of it's amazing how wrong one of them is. So let's go through this. Biden was asked a question, and thank you, PBS, for, you know, the same question that's been asked about 17,000 times and has been adequately answered 17,000 times, but people still act like it's an open question. Uh, Biden's asked, is Bernie's plan realistic? See, this is what frustrates me, guys, is that it's not like I can stomach ideological disagreements, but I can't stomach either lies or just things that are so objectively wrong that are casually thrown around, either like the deepest ignorance ever or lies. It's I don't know which it is, but either way, I can't stand it, because if you're asked the question, is it realistic? you have to factor in that every other developed country has universal health care, one version or another of it. And they don't do that. And so they just go, no, no, it's not realistic. But you're just, you're so mind-numbingly wrong that it's embarrassing that if you show this video to somebody living in any other developed country, they'll be like, wow, I can't believe you just said that. <laughs> really? We're, it's not realistic? Of course it's realistic. Of course you could do it. It's just a matter of actually doing it. But you have to take on powerful special interests. You have to take on Big Pharma and the for-profit health insurance companies, and a guy like Biden's just not up to that. Keep it real. He's just not. Those are his donors. So um, then it got testy when he was like, put your hand down for a second, Bernie. Yes, dude, the reason his hand's up is because you're, you're lying on his plan. Like you're repeatedly saying things that are not true. I'll be kind and say, I don't know if it's a lie, but you're saying things that are just not true about his plan. Of course he's going to put his hand up. Of course he wants to correct the record. It's like you're grossly smearing his ideology and his proposal, and then you're upset that he's like, I want to talk about this. It's unbelievable. Um, then he goes on to make the choice point. You know, I'm amazed, guys. I'm amazed that at this late date they still haven't – like you have to adjust your propaganda. You can't just keep using the same points that have been debunked a thousand times. So when we talk about choice, I just told you, we have less choice under our current system with our private health insurance companies running the show. I know because, first of all, you have to get like a new plan every year, which is just so frustrating and annoying that you have to go through the same problem, all the paperwork and nonsense every year. But I can't even choose my doctor because every plan that I pick have a choice of, choice, has in-network doctors and out-of-network doctors. So they limit my choice. And the idea that like, oh, but I will give you a choice as to what's covered and what's not covered. But I want everything covered. How ridiculous is that? That's like with fire insurance where you say, I only want my bedroom and the kitchen covered, but if my living room burns, leave it. I want the choice. Is that an area where choice makes sense? Is that an area where choice is reasonable? No, I think that's absolutely ridiculous. I think that that's something that should just be off the table. I don't need choice in what's covered. I want everything covered. Full stop. Every plan should be the gold plan. Full stop. So when he brings up choice, okay, under Medicare for All, you can go to any doctor you want to go to. Under our current system, you can't. So tell me who has more choice again. That's right. It's Medicare for All. 
but he, then he's uh, like, a uh, choice of keeping your current employer uh, health care. And he brings up, he always use, usually brings up the unions. He didn't hear, but he usually brings up the unions. He says, oh, well, they fought hard for their, uh, you know, their health insurance plan. Yeah, but a lot of unions have already endorsed Medicare for all. So you're willing to accept their argument when it was like, oh, you fought for your health care plan, but you're not willing to accept it when they say, oh, yeah, we also support Medicare for all. He conveniently leaves that part out. <laughs> But they, a lot of them do support Medicare for all. And by the way, all we're talking about is let's have them have everything covered and pay less. So, yeah, they fought for better insurance plans, but why shouldn't everybody have a top-level insurance plan? Who would you deny good insurance to? I know my answer. Nobody. <laughs> What's your answer, Joe? Um, so the choice thing is nonsense. Now, Bernie's response, man, Bernie's response. He says, listen. Under our current system, average family makes 60000 They pay 12000 for health care, for health insurance. Um, under Medicare for All, they pay $1,200. Why? We're getting rid of the greed and profiteering, the unnecessary price-gouging middleman. I would love it if Bernie for once took my point on this and started calling the for-profit health insurance companies what they are, a mafia. They're an unnecessary middleman. They're taking their cut. Why should they even be in the middle? If, if we have a single payer, a single insurer, the government, they don't need to take a cut. They don't need to take a cut. So, I, I mean, just I'd love it if he pointed that out. But he brings up the raw numbers, and Biden's got no good response to it, which leads to the final point, which is Biden gets loud, which, by the way, doesn't mean you're right. It just means you're loud. Go ask Bill O'Reilly if being loud means being right, because that was his, whole, his trick throughout his whole career. I'm going to be really loud. That means I'm right. Um, he said it costs $30 trillion. I love it when they bring up the whole price tag. And uh, by the way, totally just missed the point that Bernie just made, where he's like, yeah, Medicare for all is less expensive. What are you missing here? What are you missing? But he goes right back to $30 trillion it costs. I covered the detailed study on this show from the University of Massachusetts Amherst. I covered it. Medicare for all saves $5 trillion over the course of a decade. $5 trillion. Even if you take the libertarian Mercatus Koch-funded study, it saves $2 trillion. So don't, any way you slice it or dice it, it saves money. So don't bring up the price tag and be like, oh my God, the price tag. Because then we can flip that right back on you and then some. What about the price tag of what we have now? Really, we can't afford to not do Medicare for all. That's the reality. And the, the worst point he made, again, don't know if it's dishonest or if he's just ignorant. But he says, oh, you're, you're going to add 84% on top of what we're paying now. This is the old Hillary trick. And there were hack smear articles written against Bernie, I believe in the Washington Post in 2016, where they did this same trick. Guys, they take the cost of Medicare for all, and then they add it on top of what our current healthcare system is. It's hard for me to think that that has any chance of not being dishonest and a lie on purpose. Because everybody knows that when you're talking about Medicare for all, it replaces our system. It replaces it. So for you to bring it up as if you can, it makes sense for the numbers to just add it on top of our current system, that's ridiculous. Because as Bernie rightly points out, we're eliminating premiums, co-pays, and deductibles. We're getting rid of the for-profit health insurance companies from being the core and the backbone of the system. We think they're the problem. So for you to say, add 84% on top of what we're already paying, I mean, that has to be dishonest. Because you know that he's not talking about adding a system on top of our system so we have two healthcare systems. He's talking about fixing the healthcare system we have 
getting rid of the trash one and bringing in the new one, the better one. So, but that's all they have, and that's why I'm so frustrated is it would be nice to see a debate between somebody who actually believes in a market healthcare system but can not make just objectively shitty, debunked a thousand times talking points. So, you know, I, to me, that's far and away. Bernie destroyed him, but it really is something to watch Joe Biden get testy, especially when he's dead wrong about something and he gets, like, really condescending and loud. Like, pipe down with your terrible corporate talking points that have been absolutely obliterated a thousand times over, man. I mean, this really grates on the nerves. Okay, next. We are going to go to the snap poll now. Snap poll time, snap poll time. I think you guys are going to like this one. The LA Times did a post-debate snap poll focus group. So they have uh, Frank Luntz here, who's a famous pollster, and they had a room full of, I don't know how many people. Um, It's not that many. So just so everybody knows, I'll say it up front. This is not statistically significant by any stretch of the imagination. Um, But I do want to show you it because there is, I do think there's something you could take from it. So uh, take a look at who it is that won the snap poll. Again, take it for what it's worth. It is not statistically significant by any stretch of the imagination. Um, but needless to say, I was very happy to see that. I was very happy to see that. And I hope that it becomes statistically significant. What's funny is I really haven't seen many polls after any of these debates. And my recollection is that in the last election, there were snap polls after every single debate. I don't know what happened, but my guess is that uh, behind the scenes there was there were some conversations between the Republican Party and the Democratic Party and the respective media outlets, and they let them know, like, X nay on the polls case because they can't control the narrative if you have the snap polls. Because Bernie won after, like, every debate in every snap poll in 2016, and Trump won after every debate in every snap poll in 2016 in the primaries. And in the general election, Trump destroyed Hillary in, like, every post-debate snap poll. So it's interesting. The anti-establishment, or I should be clear because Trump is not fundamentally anti-establishment in terms of what he's doing in office. He campaigned in an anti-establishment way, but he's not governing in that way. But the relatively more anti-establishment candidates are winning in the polls. And so now I, don't, I see like next to no polls. Every debate I look like, oh, let me find a snap poll and see what's going on. I don't see many. Maybe a couple days later they have like one or two, but very, very few and far between, man. Really weird. But 
the cool thing is that, at least in that focus group, it's not just like Bernie Sanders supporters going in, Bernie Sanders supporters going out. In the focus group, it's like, no, I wasn't a Bernie supporter, but he killed it. That's interesting. So you got had Bernie, Warren, and Yang were the three. Guys, what do I tell you? I tell you all the time on this show. And I'm, I'm happy because this helps, even, again, even though it's not statistically significant, it helps, you know, let me know, like, oh, okay, so I'm not the one who's, who's super off base here. But one of my biggest things is if you're running for president and I ask somebody who follows politics, why is that person running? If they, if they can't answer like that, you messed up. And, again, there are four candidates who can, people can answer right away why they're running. Bernie Sanders, Tulsi Gabbard, Andrew Yang, and Elizabeth Warren. Those are the four that people can, they know, roughly speak. Yeah, this is why that person's running. So all the other ones, and you see it there. Steyer, oh, who thinks Steyer won? Nobody. <laughs> the other people, too, didn't get much. So I don't know. I think that's pretty cool. I wish there were more snap polls. But, 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 you're going to love this. You're going to love this. Who's the media relentlessly pushing? Klobuchar. Chris Saliza, also known as the pundit who's been wrong about absolutely everything he's ever said, he has winners, Klobuchar, big time, big time, big time, Biden and Yang. I agree with him on Yang. I think Yang did well. Biden had his best night, but I still had him in, at place in number three in the debate. But he said winners, Klobuchar, big time. And then he said losers, Bernie, first 90 minutes of the debate. Wow. That's funny, because the people in the focus group seem to disagree. It's almost like you're trying to control the narrative. And then I love this response here from Rob Rousseau on Twitter. This is glorious. He shows Chris Saliza and uh, Harry Enton's definitive 2020 power rankings for the Democrats. And he has Kamala Harris and Beto O'Rourke at one and two, also known as absolute failures who've already had to drop out in embarrassment. That's who Chris Saliza had in his power rankings. And now he's going to tell us Klobuchar won big time. And then Politico as well was trying to push Klobuchar. I'm telling you guys, there's a concerted effort. She got the most speaking time when we were like halfway through the debate or so. They have a tracker of who's speaking the most. Klobuchar spoke the most. It's almost like there's a concerted effort to have another insurance plan against a a potential Bernie nomination. They don't have faith that Biden's going to last, it looks like. And so they're hedging. And so they're like, "Uh, try to pump up Klobuchar. And it's, it's wild because I've never seen a bigger disconnect. Nobody I've ever spoken to, uh, granted, again, this is anecdotal, but nobody I've ever spoken to in my personal life has ever been like, oh, yeah, I like Klobuchar. <laughs> Nobody's ever said that. But the media, oh, they love her. And the reality is, guys, that, of course, these people, Klobuchar more fits them ideologically and, and culturally. Because culturally, she's, you know, like, oh, soft-spoken Midwesterner. It's funny because she's accused of, like, throwing staplers at her frickin' workers' heads. But, like, culturally, she's like, oh, I saw spoken folksy Midwesterner, which, you know, I think mainstream media is a lot less edgy than your average person. And so they're like, oh, I like how safe she is. But also ideologically, she's a neoliberal centrist. So, like, they agree with that more. Now, the difference between me and them is they never tell you their bias up front. I do. And by the way, sometimes, I, you know, I get in trouble for that. Like, I get points docked against me. Because I'm honest in that I'm a Bernie supporter. And by the way, that doesn't mean I think everything he does is right. No, I've criticized him on uh, BDS, for example. I've criticized him on a number of issues. Because, you know, uh, just because I'm a Bernie supporter doesn't mean he's right about everything. But it's funny because I get docked points because it's like, oh, 
well, he's, he's just a Bernie shill. No, I'm a Bernie supporter. No reason to put, like, the weird negative connotation. Oh, you're a shill. Like, what, are, what are we, in high school? Like, a shill? Like, what? What is that? I'm a Bernie supporter, but even so, I criticize him all the time. I didn't agree with his thing on Russiagate. I didn't agree with his thing on impeachment. I went after him for some of what he said about Venezuela. Like, no, I'm not. Anyway, I digress from that. They're biased, and they would never tell you up front what their beliefs are. They pretend like they're objective, and then they say goofy stuff like Klobuchar. No, it turns out you like Klobuchar because Klobuchar agrees more with you ideologically. But you would never say that. You think it's just objective that she won, which is absolutely hilarious. Okay. Final story of the day. Here we go. Oh, did I not, um, fuck, what did I do here? Oh, no, I got it. Never mind. Never mind. A really interesting old Trump video reemerged from 2008. He's speaking to CNN here, to Wolf Blitzer, and he makes some interesting comments about impeachment. That was interesting. That was interesting. Now, it's funny because people are trying to use this to, like, hypocrisy burn him. But I don't, I don't think there's hypocrisy there. He wanted Bush to be impeached for starting an illegal war based on lies. And he doesn't want himself to be impeached for, you know, a phone call with Ukraine trying to use his political influence to get an investigation into the Bidens. That's not – I don't see hypocrisy. <laughs> I mean – well, so because he's for impeachment of Bush, he should support all impeachments, including him as president? I don't get that. And he also said, I didn't support the Clinton one, for what it's worth. Um, but that is a fascinating clip. Who would have known? If you told Trump back then in 2008, by the way, the next president is going to be you, <laughs> and you're going to be impeached. Because in 08, that's when Obama was elected, and then it was two terms of Obama, and then Trump got elected. Imagine telling him back then, you're going to be the next president. And also, you're going to be impeached. <laughs> oh, man, that's wild. That's wild. And by the way, he looked a lot younger back then, didn't he? 
I mean, I feel like he looks relatively similar from 2016 when he won until now, 2019. But in 2008, he looked a lot younger than he did in 20, uh, 2016 and today. And, you know, I mean, it is, I guess you could say it's a long time, but it looks like he aged more than a decade in that time frame, for sure. Um, but, yeah, it's funny because he says this about the war now, but we're still in Iraq. We're still in Afghanistan. He's increased drone strikes 432%, as all you guys know, because I mentioned that on, like, every single show. So, yeah, dude, I, you're talking about, all oh, the war's bad, the war's bad. Bring them home. Bring the troops home. What are you waiting for? What are you waiting for? It's so frustrating that even when candidates run on anti-war stuff, then they get in office and they're like, <laughs> anyway, we're going to keep going down this path and I'm not going to change much. Is that cool? Is that cool? No, it's not. It's not. I don't like that. That's bad. Very bad. Not good. Not good. Very much not good. Um, but by the way, the thing he says about Bush here too, I, I think there was a much better case to impeach uh, Bush versus Trump. Um, there was a much stronger case against Bush, but the reason they didn't go after Bush is because the Democrats were complicit in the crimes too, because so many of them voted for the Iraq war. So many of them knew about the torture program and didn't do anything to stop it. So they can't impeach him because they're bipartisan crimes on that front. Um, but even if you were, and here's the main point, even if you were to impeach Bush, you would have gotten Cheney. You would have gotten Cheney. And he's definitely worse than Bush, definitely worse than Bush. So, you know, it, it, you run into the same problem, unfortunately, very often, which is really if you want presidents to be, you know, held accountable, honestly, the better move is to totally resist them on policy substance and hammer them with your own agenda, but also in Mitch McConnell style, fully block their agenda by any means necessary legislatively. That is honestly the best way to hold a president accountable. Um, that doesn't mean that you should never impeach a president, but I think it does mean you should be realistic about the surrounding circumstances and what would happen in the case of impeaching a president. Um, I think the politics of it are very important, particularly because it is a political act. It's not a judicial act. As many, pe many, many people don't understand that. It's not a judicial act. It's not like you're going after him criminally. It's a political act. That's all it is. So you should, of course, weigh the politics, you know, uh, around it. But who knew? That's fascinating that Trump called for Bush to be impeached over the illegal wars. And now he's continuing those illegal wars. Okay. All right, we're out of time, guys. I love you, baby. Um, I'll see you guys. I think we have a show Monday, right? What, what, what day will Monday be? Let me look at a calendar real quick. Sunday. Yeah, the 23rd. We have a show Monday. We have a show Monday. Anyway, all right. Love you guys. Uh, see you Monday. I'm out. Peace.